I don't have a handout for you, so I would invite you to take your Bibles at this time. And hopefully you remember to bring those from this morning. But if you did not or um, you know, just forgot, that's okay. Um, normally we do have handouts, and, and so that's something that's not as um, needed usually because the verses are printed on the page. If you don't have one, that's okay. We have several underneath your pew rack. So grab one of those. We're going to be studying Joshua 7 tonight. And, uh, and you can start turning to that passage a while as I begin. Um, the spiritual life of a Christian can be one of incredible opposites. In one moment, we can be on fire for the Lord, and, and our prayer life can be amazing. We can be trusting in the Lord with all of our heart. We can be seeking to do His will, making incredible strides in the way we act and think and behave. And then it's amazing, almost in the very next moment, we can plummet and fall into some certain sin or temptation or attitude that just takes us uh, for a nosedive. And, and in the very next moment, uh, we, we're in despair and, and fallen from that place uh, where we once stood. Um, we would like to think that once we reach a certain spiritual high, as we grow in our Christian faith, that we'll remain there forever um, and that we're safe from falling. But unfortunately, that just isn't the case. The reality is that if we don't remain spiritually alert, we have the ability to fall in our Christian walk at any moment. Let me say that again. If we are not spiritually alert day by day, we have the ability to fall in our Christian walk at any moment. And so the message is we must be alert. We must be alert. And that's the lesson that we find in Joshua chapter 7, our passage for tonight, when we discuss the battle of Ai and the children of Israel and the sin of Achan. So if you haven't done so, I'd invite you to turn there. I trust many of you are familiar with the basic story of the first chapters of Joshua. Of course, we're jumping right in, so you might not know where I'm going. But if, uh, if I say things like the battle of Jericho, Okay, and Joshua and the children of Israel, maybe that uh, stirs some thoughts in your mind. Okay, uh, the children of Israel in, in this passage had been wandering through the wilderness for some 40 years. Okay, and to bring us up to speed, uh, Moses had just died. Joshua had just taken his place as the next leader of Israel. And they are now ready to take hold of that promised land that God had um, promised them, had pledged to them from the very beginning. And so the first significant stronghold that had to be defeated was that city of Jericho. Now, Jericho's walls were too secure, too strong for the army of Israel to overcome by themselves. Okay, uh, so they needed God's help. They needed God's help throughout the entire thing, of course, but especially in the battle of Jericho. And there was no way around it. They needed to conquer that city if they were going to move forward. And so, you know, probably from a Sunday school lesson as a child or from what you know of the Bible, uh, that uh, the children of Israel did follow God's instructions. God said, if you march around the city a total of 13 times, trust in me and then shout at the end, the walls will fall and you will take the city. Now, this defies all logic, okay? By all other accounts, uh, marching around a wall and shouting really loud doesn't knock down a wall, okay? Not if you factor in physics or, you know, even if they were to shout in a high pitch like those opera ladies that you've heard about that shatter glasses, okay? That's not the thing. So any explanation that you might read about it 
falls through. Okay, they had to be relying upon God's power. That's the only way you can explain that it happened. And you know what? Despite all logic, to the contrary, they trusted in God. They did exactly what he asked them to do. They marched around that wall 13 times and they shouted and blew the trumpets. And you know what? It happened. The wall fell down and God gave them the victory he promised. That was a high point in their spiritual walk. They were trusting in God to do something that was otherwise impossible. They weren't doubting it in the least. They were following him with their feet. Okay, they were walking literally according to his word. Okay, and it seemed like God was on their side and it would be smooth sailing from there because of this victory. It's all the more surprising that when we get to chapter seven, uh, we find that Israel's obedience is suddenly replaced with outright rebellion. And in, in an instant, that joy of victory is replaced with the agony of defeat. The Israelite army moves on its next important city, and that we see is called Ai. And instead of experiencing victory, as they did in Jericho, God's people are suddenly defeated by an opposing army without even any question. They were just soundly defeated in an instant and uh, all because of their sudden disobedience to God's law. There's this drastic turnaround for the worse that comes between chapter six and chapter seven. And so I'd like us to focus on this sudden change that we see in chapter seven. I'd like us to look at exactly what happened in the case of the battle of Ai. And through this story, I would like us to really take heed as to just how fast we can fall. And then hopefully after we've meditated on this portion of scripture tonight, hopefully we will be more alert, more diligent in our walk with Christ so that we won't fall um, as easily but that we might live consistent lives of obedience for the Lord. That's my goal. It's a lofty goal, but I trust that we'd be able to just for a moment focus our attention on this passage and, and take heed to it and apply it. Okay, so let's devote our time to this passage. Joshua 7. In the last verse of Joshua 6, uh, verse 27, it reads this. So the Lord was with Joshua and his fame was in all the land. Okay, so that's how chapter six ended. Things were great. They won the battle of Jericho. Wonderful. Okay, then we go to verse one of chapter seven. But the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to the things under the ban for Achan, son of Camry, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah from the tribe of Judah, took some things under the ban. Therefore, the anger of the Lord burned against the sons of Israel. So here we see the problem described plainly. Okay, Jericho was conquered, but one of the Israelites, his name is Achan, took some of the loot that had come out of Jericho. And that's the main problem which introduces this section. You see, Jericho had been placed under this thing called the ban. Okay, we just read that in verse one. And and this word ban comes from a Hebrew word, uh, harem which means a devoted thing or, or a ban. The, the verb haram means to ban or devote or even to destroy utterly. So basically, this word refers to objects that were not to be used by man, but were to be designated, uh, surrendered to God. And in chapter six, we learn that everything or every person that was in Jericho 
except for Rahab and her family, was put under this thing known as the ban. So if you flip back just a little bit, Joshua 6.18 describes this. It says, But as for you, only keep yourselves from the things under the ban, so that you do not covet them and take some of these things under the ban and make a camp of Israel, make the camp of Israel cursed and bring trouble on it. Okay? So what does this ban mean? Okay, what were they supposed to do with these things? What was God instructing them about? It's important for us to understand this because that helps us understand the nature of the trespass, which we see in verse 1. Well, this ban meant two things. First, it meant that every living thing was to be completely destroyed. You heard me say that that Hebrew word, haram, means either to set aside, to devote, or it could also mean just to destroy. And in the case of all living things, that's what it meant. Um, This is one of the harder things for us as 21st century Christians to understand living in America. Okay, we read this and we recognize that God is essentially commanding them to kill every living thing in Jericho. Men, women, children, animals, everything. And and somebody who is not a believer or even yourself, you might look at that and say, boy, that seems harsh. Okay, why would God command people to kill other people? Okay, isn't God going a little bit far there? However. If we remember that God is the ultimate judge of the universe, we must admit that God has the right to judge it as he sees fit. Okay, that's a logical consequence of that. If God is the judge of the universe, then he has the right to judge and his ways are right. And further, when we recognize uh, what the Canaanites were about, who they were, we see that they were by no means innocent. Okay, a larger principle is coming to play here. And Pastor Reed mentioned this this morning as he was sharing the heart of the gospel at the end of his message. He was saying that um, all sin has to be paid for with death. The result of our sins, the wages of our sins is death. If we were to get what we deserve for our lives that we live, it would be death. That's the consequence that what's that's what needs to take place when you and I sin. That's the right and just thing for God to do. And we see that the Canaanites were by no means perfect or innocent. They were quite guilty as far as God's law was concerned. We know from history that they were a vile people. They practiced some of the worst forms of immorality, including child sacrifice. And God had given them over 400 years to repent. That's an important thing to remember. There's a time in earlier in the, in the Pentateuch, that is the first five books of the Old Testament, where God says, no, you're, these, these people are not to be judged yet because the sin of the Amorite has not reached its fullness. Okay? Showing that God has been incredibly patient with these people. If, if, if you were to be truly just, he would destroy them from the beginning, from the very beginning of their sins. But God doesn't do that. He has given them 400 years plus to repent. So God is incredibly patient. We see that over and over in the Bible. Okay? And, and God had every right, as we already said, to destroy anybody who rebels against his law, does not acknowledge him as God. And so he had every right to destroy the people of Jericho. This was not a cruel thing to do. Rather, it reveals to us that even us, even we, would be worthy of that same punishment if God were to look on us and truly be just. You recognize that? We're not to look at this passage and say, my, how cruel God is. We're to look at that and say, wow, if I were put in that situation, even if I didn't do all the things that the Canaanites and the Amorites did, God would have every right to to take my life in penalty for what I've done against him. That's how serious sin is. 
And so uh, God had every right to command that these people be destroyed for the things that they had done. God had been patient and God is just. Okay, that's what it meant for all living things. But this ban that we're talking about meant another thing uh, for material possessions. Okay, for things to be under the ban also meant that valuable objects like gold and silver were to be dedicated to the Lord's treasury. This was evidently to be done as a kind of uh, first fruits of the land and an evidence of the people's trust in the Lord to supply for their future. Uh, All of the earth is the Lord's, and so all of the wealth was to go to God. After all, it was him that was giving them their victory. Everything belongs to God. So it wasn't for them to plunder and to take for their own um, pleasure. All of these things were to be devoted to God because he was the one who granted it to them. Okay, that was the ban on material goods. So that's the idea of the ban that God commanded them to obey. However, in chapter 7, we see the disobedience to this command. Chapter 7 opens up with one small but ominous word. Do you see it? It starts with the word but. But. Okay. That word but gives us a a, a clue as to what is going to happen next. And verse 1 reads, But the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regards to these things under the ban. Okay. Let's note several things about this problem that's facing the Israelite nation. Uh, first, that word unfaithfully. Do you see it use the word uh, unfaithfully? They acted unfaithfully in regard to the things under the ban. You're meant to, to think of a marriage relationship. Uh, how somebody can act unfaithfully to their spouse, cheat on them, break the covenant. Israel here was unfaithful to God in that she broke her agreement, her covenant with him. And that covenant was that, among other things, that she was not to have anything that God had banned. But in her unfaithfulness, she showed that she loved money more than God. My mind was brought almost to the Garden of Eden, where, you know, God is giving them this great victory. He's blessing them in so many ways. He just has one command, just one, not a ton of rules, not a million for them to to have to remember. Just one thing, and that is this issue of the ban. Um, But just like Adam just even though there was one tree that he was to avoid, um, it was disobeyed. It wasn't followed. Israel acted unfaithfully to God. The Lord also um, held the whole camp of Israel accountable for the act of one man. And he withheld his blessing until that matter was dealt with. That's another lesson that we learn here. See, there was a sin in the camp and God would not continue blessing that nation as long as this was so doesn't mean that the rest of the nation was sinless or that this was the only sin. But this sin was of such a nature, a sin of direct disobedience and rebellion, that God used it to teach Israel and consequently us a couple of important lessons. Let me list you those for you. One is that God viewed the nation as a unit. What one did was viewed as a sin for the whole nation. Did you notice that? It's just one man, but it's being viewed as a sin for the whole nation. That's important because we often forget that God looks at us not just as individuals, but as a church. We often think that our sin is our own, that it only affects me. But we forget that God looks at the church completely and not just on an individual level. In our culture, we've become much more individualistic. It's just something that's become a part of who we are. And so it's easy to tell yourself, whether you say it out loud or not, if you're doing something you know to be wrong, to think that this only affects me and, and as long as it remains secret, it doesn't affect anybody else. And you may think in terms of your family or in terms of um, your friends, but it can affect those spheres of our life as well. It doesn't just affect us. And it can even affect 
the church, the congregation of God's people. That's a lesson we see here in the sin of one man, Achan, how it affected the entire nation of Israel. And the second le- uh, lesson is similar. Uh, one believer's sin impacts everyone. Achan's behavior also illustrates how one believer out of fellowship um, negatively impacts and creates trouble for an entire group. I don't know if you recognize this, but Achan's name actually means trouble or is dev- kind of derived from a word in Hebrew that means trouble. Achor. Okay? And you'll see in the end um, that they call the valley where they, they uh, execute him the Valley of Achor, okay? It's an ironic name because his name means trouble, and Achan is the one who has been a troubler to Israel because of his sin, because of the trouble that he brings upon the whole nation, okay? And, uh, and so he is aptly named, and, and that valley where he is stoned is called the Valley of Achor, okay? Which you can hear the similarity in the name, Achan, Achor, okay? The Apostle Paul uh, talked about the same kind of principle, about how one person's sin can corrupt the entire church. When he talked about it in 1 Corinthians 5, 6-13, you don't have to turn there, um, but it says in verse 6, don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Okay? Just a little bit of sin can influence the whole congregation, the whole group, and we see that at work here. Another lesson we learn is that nothing escapes the omniscience of God. Okay? Sin never escapes His watchful eye. We can fool ourselves and others, but we can never fool the Lord, you understand. Okay? We can convince others around us that nothing's going on. We can even convince ourselves. We can lie to ourselves to such a degree that we ignore what we're doing or just totally forget about it. We can block it out of our minds. But God is aware of all things, and we can never hide it uh, from Him. Finally, we learn that sin is no a small matter to God. Okay? Therefore, the anger, it says, of the Lord burned against the sons of Israel in verse 1. And that dramatically calls our attention to the holiness of God and the fact that sin is no small matter with Him. Even the smallest of sins, at least in our minds, what we consider the smallest of sins. He is holy, He is perfect, and He desires His people to be as well. And so God must thus deal with us and the sin in our lives if He is to be truly just. And so He deals with the people Israel in that way. Okay, so that's the disobedience. We learned about the ban that they were under. We learned about what Achan did to disobey that ban. And now we see the consequence. Okay? We see the consequence in the defeat of Ai. Or at Ai, rather. Okay? When we return to verse 2, the story continues on almost from Joshua's point of view. You see, it goes on kind of like Joshua would have thought. He he didn't know that all of this was going on. Okay? Achan had committed this sin privately. And so Joshua is just coming off of the victory of Jericho and he's moving on to the next battle of Ai. And he didn't know somebody had sinned, so he proceeds to uh, go on to the next victory. But here we see how more that was wrong with Israel than just one man. Okay, we, can, we can come away from this passage thinking that it was just one man that was at fault and that's the whole reason. But when we see Joshua's reaction, his attitude through this whole thing, we see it's not just Achan. There's more to it than that. Um, Rather than recognize God as the one who grants or denies victory, we see in the verses that follow that Joshua and even Israel thought it was their own strength, just through their attitudes that are revealed to us. And therefore, the text tells us in verses 2 through 5 
that as they're going to battle against Ai, as they're coming off of this victory at Jericho, uh, that they don't send many troops the second time around. It says basically that they just, you know, give a small army because they, they figure, well, this is a smaller army that we're going against. We defeated Jericho with no problem. God's going to be with us. There should be no issue here. So let's just send a small band of troops and they shouldn't make short work of it. Okay. Um, and they didn't even consult God either as we read these verses. So we see that they send a small amount of troops thinking the victory was theirs. And we don't see any hint that uh, Joshua prayed to God asking for his wisdom, that they ask his blessing or his help or his strength to, to achieve this victory. And so we see four deadly errors are the result. Okay. The first one is that they remained ignorant of the sin of Achim. Okay. They didn't consult God so they didn't have any opportunity for God to tell them something needed to be corrected before they went into this battle. Secondly, they underestimated the strength of their enemy, thinking that everybody else was uh, measly and, and wimpy and, and you know nothing in comparison to their vast army, which leads to the third problem. They overestimated their strength of their own army. And finally, they presumed on the Lord. That is, they took for granted uh, that... Uh, he would be with them. They thought it was just a given that he would always give them victory no matter what. However, we see, contrary to their attitudes, that God is not on their side. You see, because Israel had broken faith with God through the sin of Achan, God caused them to be defeated. The little army of Ai decimates their troops. The same troops that took this massive, uh, mighty city of Jericho just a few verses before. Okay. Um, this small army of Ai manages to kill 39 of them and chase others away. And you might say to yourself as you read this passage, 39, that doesn't sound like a whole lot. What do you mean that they decimated them? I just think what the text is telling us is they started to kill them off very quickly. And 39 of them died before uh, Israel realized, hey, they're going to keep doing this. We better get out of here. And so 39 of them die and then the rest run away. And the only reason more weren't killed was because they started to realize what was happening. And so they were chased away. So don't see that as a small number. See that as just a small taste of what would have happened had they stayed and fought. They would have all been wiped out. Okay? Verse 5, look there. It says, Therefore the hearts of the people melted and became as water. The defeat of Ai demoralized the people. Okay? And, uh, and this demoralized and, and ruined them. And, and perhaps it's even more significant than the defeat itself because it created these misgivings and a lack of hope or confidence in the Lord as a result. Or it only complicated and made worse that attitude that was already in their hearts of trusting in themselves and not the Lord. So rather than examine their own lives as the source of this defeat, they begin to doubt the Lord and wonder if uh, he was really with them or if he had changed his mind or if he had somehow been unfaithful to them. Uh, they start to ask questions like, um, were we really supposed to have crossed the Jordan? Should we have stayed on the other side? We see that in verse seven, if you look there. So they start asking really strange things. And this is exactly um, what the children of Israel um, had done in times past. OK, um, they used to say things like maybe we weren't supposed to leave Egypt after all. Maybe things weren't so bad. OK, that's how Joshua's army responded at Ai. And in our sinful nature, in our sinful nature, what I want you to see is that uh, we can respond like that, too. When we experience certain setbacks in life, OK, 
Okay? We can become so depressed, just like these people do. Um, we can become discouraged, disoriented, and we look in every direction for a reason for that defeat except ourselves. Now, I'm not saying that every setback you have had in your life is a result of some sin that you've had, so that somehow you have to go back and figure out what was it that I have done. We know that's not the case. We know sometimes and many times God brings trials into our lives that aren't necessarily a result of our own sin. Maybe they're a result of other people's sin. Or maybe they're just there to build us in our spiritual walk and to kind of test us and to um, refine us as gold, as it were. But you know, sometimes it can very well be that the reason we've experienced a setback is because of something that we have done. And I think that sometimes we're, we forget to, to examine ourselves. We assume that that's never the case, and, and we forget to look in that direction. We start to examine all other kinds of reasons as to why this might have taken place, just like the children of Israel do. Maybe it's because we weren't supposed to be here. Maybe God has told us to do something else, not even seeing if there was some sort of sin within their camp. Um, just like we sometimes forget to see if there's some sort of sin within our own hearts that could have brought us to where we are at. Okay. So that's the defeat. And this is the kind of response uh, that we see that, unfortunately, Joshua had in verses 6 through 9. Now, on one hand, uh, we see that Joshua is specifically the one speaking. Okay? And so it's his reaction that we see. We don't hear other people's voices. Uh, but on the other hand, we know that he is speaking representatively of the people uh, that he is serving. Okay? So really, this is not just Joshua's reaction as we read these verses, but it's pretty much the entire nation's reaction as well. Okay? In his attitude, we see the attitude of the people. Okay? And in a very real sense, he's representing the way they are thinking, feeling, um, the way they're discouraged in the situation as well. Okay? You might look at how he reacts and think that, he reacted quite well. Okay, so now that we're moving on from the defeat, we see that in the text um, he falls on his knees. Okay, and he does a number of things that would otherwise make us think that he's responding well. Look at verse 6. Verse 6. Okay, they've been defeated, and it says, Joshua tore his clothes, and he fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening, both he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. Okay. Now, you'd look at that and you'd say, these are classic signs of mourning and humility. And, and to be honest, I mean, let's um, be real here. Joshua didn't get angry with God. He didn't shake his fist at God or sit down in bitterness like Jonah did when he didn't get his way. And so in one sense, we might say that, uh, that Joshua is doing the right things here when he learns of this defeat. But yet on the other hand, when we take the words that Joshua speaks in verses 7 through 9, I think this shows us that he really has failed to examine inward at the sins of his people. And, and instead of doing that, he has questioned God's intentions and judgment. So even though he's acting in humility, we see that through his words that he speaks in these next few verses, that his heart isn't altogether right. Okay. Rather than doubt the integrity of his congregation, uh, he doubts the purpose and intention of God instead. Look at verses 7 through 9 with me. Joshua says, Alas, O Lord God, why did you ever bring this people over the Jordan only to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites, to destroy us? If only we had been willing to dwell back beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say since Israel has turned their back before their enemies? 
for the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it. And they will surround us and cut us off and cut off your name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? Okay, that's Joshua's response that's described for us. Okay, on, on one hand, uh, he doesn't know why Israel has lost. So on one hand, you could say he's just looking for answers. You know, in, in truth, he doesn't know what Achan has done yet at this point. So really, it stunned him. He's not sure what has gone wrong. He's just looking for, for answers from God. But yet, I think his answer and his, his questions and the things he says in these verses go beyond that. Look who he's blaming. Um, look who he's blaming the defeat on. He says, God, why did you ever bring us out here only to kill us? Okay? You see what he's doing? He's assuming the fault is on God. Okay? And so I don't think that this is a particularly good reason or a good reaction, I'm sorry, for, for Joshua, despite the tearing of the robes and, and the falling on his face. In fact, Joshua's reaction is all too similar to a passage of Scripture that's found earlier in the Old Testament. And I think this will really bring out what I'm trying to tell you. I'd like you to keep your finger here in Joshua and turn with me to Numbers chapter 14. Okay? So, um, you have to go back two books, back you know, before Deuteronomy to Numbers. Numbers 14. Okay, and remember, keep your hand in Joshua. I want to show a comparison here between two passages of Scripture to kind of bring out the attitude, I think, that's behind Joshua's words. Okay? Uh, we're going to go to Numbers 14, verses 1 through 3. Okay, and... Um, I want you to listen to this as I, as I read it. The scenario is that the Israelites are wandering in the desert under Moses. Um, they've just gotten a first look at the promised land. It hasn't been all that long, relatively speaking, that they have been wandering in the wilderness. God has pretty much led them to the place they're supposed to go. Okay? And Moses, who's still alive, uh, sends out spies to examine the land. And among them are Joshua and Caleb and ten others. Okay, ten leaders of different tribes of, of Israel. Um, Caleb and Joshua come back and say that they should attack it. They follow what God has been uh, saying to them all along and say, yes, if God's with us, we can certainly take these people and we will have victory. But the other ten, the other ten um, are scared and they convince the, uh, the, the people of Israel otherwise. And they say that the people of Canaan are too strong. They would defeat them if, if they even tried. And so in Numbers 14, 1 through 3, it reads this way. Okay? Uh, then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept all that night. All the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in the wilderness. Why, listen to this, why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? Okay. Did you notice that? As you flip back to Joshua, do you notice a similarity at all? I, I was just struck by this when I compared the two together. I read Joshua and I said, boy, that sounds awfully familiar to me. These words, I feel like I've read them before. And sure enough, I have in Numbers 14. The people say in Numbers 14, why did you bring us here, God, just to kill us? Joshua says, why, God, did you bring us this far to kill us? Okay. The people say, oh, that we have stayed, would have stayed back in Egypt. 
Joshua says, oh, that we would have stayed back on the other side of the Jordan. You see, uh, when you put it in that light, Joshua isn't having a faithful response at all. Rather, he's responding in the same way that the children of Israel did when spies reported about the land of Canaan. And I think the ironic thing is Joshua was among the good spies. He would have had to put up with this. These were the enemies of him when he was delivering that good report with Caleb. And now he's on the opposite side. Now he's saying those same things that many years before uh, those people were grumbling against him. Okay, and I think that really uh, brings to light the kind of attitude that Joshua is having in Joshua seven. Okay, Um, and he's doing what we do so often. He's confronted with a setback and he assumes God must be at fault rather than the people, rather than something inward. Unfortunately, Joshua doesn't get that it's his people and not God who's in the wrong. And so without that understanding, it's as if Joshua keeps babbling on. Okay, and then we can kind of read these next few verses in Joshua. You can go back there, by the way. Um, it's, It's just almost like he's babbling on without knowing what to say, since he doesn't have a proper understanding of the whole situation. It's like he's saying, uh, in, almost in hysterics, I don't know what happened, God. I mean, surely we must have misunderstood you. Uh, maybe we're not supposed to be af- here after all. Maybe we were supposed to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Uh, why would you just lead us out here to be killed like this? Why, what are our enemies going to say? You see, it's like he's babbling on, almost like a crazy fool. The height of Joshua's fullness, I think, is found at the end of this, this section in verse 9. Joshua 7, verse 9. And there he says, on top of everything, um, and what will you do for your great name? Okay. I'm sorry, but when I initially read this, I just had to laugh within myself. Because honestly, as he's saying this, do you really think that God's name really was at stake here? As if God hadn't thought of that. Oh, oh no, what am I going to do about my name? I, Joshua, I hadn't thought about that before. I'm glad you brought it up. No, it's, it's really an actually a bothersome statement to me as I read it because it's like Joshua is trying to con God. It's like he's trying to manipulate him. Joshua is saying to God, Lord, do you realize what you're doing here? If you let us be destroyed, then what are the nations going to say? What are they going to say about you, God, if suddenly your people are destroyed? Then it'll look like you didn't have the power to save us. What will that do to your reputation? Do you understand? That's what Josh was saying here. What are you going to do about your great name? Uh, If if we fall, then what's going to happen to your name, God? You can't let us fall uh, because then what's that going to do to you? Okay, it's almost like he's manipulating, trying to put God in in a, a, you know, a chokehold trying to strong arm him um, to get him to do what what he wants. It's like he's saying you can't let this keep happening, God, because then what's that going to happen? What's going to happen to your name? Okay. and, and I wonder sometimes if we do that. I think we do. I wonder if sometimes, uh, you know, Christians in their walk with God might think, you know, God, you know, I'm, I'm doing some sort of sin, X sin, okay? Uh, having an affair, okay? But um, I can't let that come out. And what's more, you don't really want that to come out, God, do you? Um, because after all, if that was made public, it would, it would ruin my family. It would um, devastate my wife. It would devastate my kids. It would ruin a whole host of things. So sometimes in our hearts, we can look at situations like that and say to God, um, God, you can't really let that happen, can you? I mean, I, I don't want it to come out. But God, if, if you do, then what's that, what's that going to do? 
That's going to wreck a whole host of things. And God, you wouldn't really let that happen. You wouldn't let that whole thing collapse on me, would you? Okay? It's almost as if we're trying to dare God. And I think very much so, yes, we can do that sometimes. Not just about something like an affair, but on all sorts of issues, big and small. Uh, God can take it if we ruin our lives and our families and our children's lives due to sin. You understand that? God can handle that. Okay? God is never put in some sort of uh, place of submission by us that he can't let our consequences come back to bite us because of what that might do to his name. God's name will be glorified throughout the earth. It will. And he will accomplish that whether we choose to be a part of that or not. And, and so we can never twist God's arm. Okay? But that's the kind of thing we do when we start trying to look for answers elsewhere rather than simply examining the sin in our own hearts. We start to say things like, God, it must be somewhere else that this problem lies. And not even looking for a solution to it anymore. We're just trying to convince God that he shouldn't let anything bad happen rather than try and look to the source and make the correction at the source. Well, Joshua, unfortunately, doesn't look inward at the people of Israel or in his own heart to discover why they lost at Ai. He instead tries to guilt God into giving them victory. Again, verse 9, he says, What will you do, God, for your great name? I think it's absolutely um, comical that God responds in an appropriate fashion in verses 10 through 15. I love God's response. There are a few times where God answers his people in such a way that I just love. I, there's some of my favorite verses in the Bible. Specifically when, when Job um, is talking to God for chapters and chapters and chapters. And all these people are around him and trying to give their explanations as to why these things happen to Job. Job, it must be your sin. You must have done something wrong. And God answers him out of the whirlwind. And he says, who is this who darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? I love that. It's like God's just putting him in his place. Brace yourself like a man, Job. If you think you're so smart, okay, I love it. love it. Some of my favorite words in the Bible. And if I'm not careful, God could say some of those same things to me. I'm not beyond any of that. So I have to be careful as I like those words because God could say some of those things to me as well when I think I know it all or I'm in a place of prominence. But here God gives a similar kind of response to Joshua. Um, He doesn't say to Joshua... Yeah, you know what? I'm sorry I didn't give you the victory. I'm really sorry I didn't help you this time. No, he says in verse 10, rise up. Or in modern English, get up, Joshua. Get off your knees. Stop babbling like an idiot. And, uh, and he says, why is it that you have fallen on your face? Okay. Joshua's gone off about all these things. God, what are we going to do? Um, uh, maybe we've gone the wrong direction. Maybe we should have stayed back. What are you going to do about your name? What happens if everybody hears about this? God doesn't answer any of that. He just says, Joshua, get up. Stop babbling to me. Stop and and look around you. Okay, Israel has sinned, he says in verses 11 and 12. In other words, it's not me that's failed. It's you. It's the whole people. And they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. And they have taken some of the things that were under the ban and have both stolen and deceived. Moreover, they have also put some of those put some of them among their own things. Therefore, the sons of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies, for they have become accursed. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy the things under the ban from your midst. So God essentially dismisses all that Joshua has been complaining about. 
He says, I have not misled you. I have not forsaken you. It's you, O Israel, that's at fault. And God will continue on here. And he gives them instructions as to how they're to solve this problem. He says, listen, if you want to have my blessing again, you're going to have to remove this this wickedness from you. You're going to have to identify who did it, and I'll help you identify who did it. And you'll have to purge this sin from Israel. And I wish I had more time. I'm out of time tonight, so I can't describe the rest of the story, but I trust you know it. That they they find out that it's Achan, he confesses, and they have to stone him in the presence of all Israel. And then from then, God blesses them again. He gives them victory. The thing I want you to recognize tonight is not uh, so much about Achan. We didn't focus really on Achan. I instead wanted to focus more on Joshua. And I wanted you to see that uh, in our own cases of being at a spiritual high and then suddenly dropping to a spiritual low, we can, it can reveal to us that uh, in, in those moments of doubt and confusion that we didn't see it coming, that that whole time we were not expecting that we ever could fall. And I want to caution you against that. When we look at Joshua 6 and 7, we see that these people certainly weren't immune to falling from God's favor and falling into disobedience. They went from obeying God and trusting him in fully to in just a few verses falling. And, and we can do the very same thing if we are not careful. Okay. First Corinthians 10. I want to close with this. Verse 12. Paul says, therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Okay. The message tonight is beyond guard. Beyond guard. Don't ever think you're in a place that you could not fall from obedience to the Lord. We have to be constantly diligent. And if we do find ourselves in a setback, we should not take the example of Joshua and try and put the blame elsewhere. But look to our own hearts and find where it is that we have fallen and the things that perhaps we could have done so that we can get back up. And the good news is that it didn't just end at AI and they were done and God left them forever. No, we see that God restores them. And that's a message for us, too. That if we examine our own hearts and remain diligent and be alert once again, God can restore us and bring us back into a place of favor as well. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for this example. We are told in 1 Corinthians 10 and other verses that these things are given to us as examples. The children of Israel were... um, we're experiencing some of these things in part so that we could learn from them and not fall into the same trap. Help us, God, never to be in a place where we are so arrogant, so cocky that we think we cannot fall. Help us always to remain diligent in obedience and trusting in you. And if we do ever fall, God, help us to be quick to examine our own hearts, to correct what needs to be corrected and to be restored. Thank you for your grace that you restore us even when we deserve to be punished, that there's never a place where we have fallen too far for you to reach and pick us back up. And God, dismiss us with your blessing, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, and you are dismissed.